Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with revelations from the recent House January the 6th committee that there was plenty of intelligence warning of an insurrection prior to January the 6th that was available to the Secret Service and the FBI, but was not acted on. Joining us is Mike German, a fellow with the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. Previously, he served as the Policy Counsel for National Security and Privacy for the American Civil Liberties Union's Washington Legislative Office and a 16-year veteran of federal law enforcement. He served as a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, where he specialized in domestic terrorism and covert operations. His books include Thinking Like a Terrorist and Disrupt, Discredit and Divide, How the New FBI Damages Democracy, and he has a report at the Brennan Center for Justice, Hidden in Plain Sight, Racism, White Supremacy and Far-Right Militancy in Law Enforcement, and he recently submitted written testimony to the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th. We will discuss a memo to a top FBI official warning of sympathy within the Bureau for the insurrectionists, stating that, quote, a sizable percentage of the employee population felt sympathetic to the group that stormed the Capitol. Then we'll look into why a majority of American experts on Russia in a 2015 survey by Foreign Affairs were against arming Ukraine and later agreed with the Kremlin that Russia's army would overwhelm and defeat Ukraine in a few days. Joining us is Taras Kuzio, a professor in the Department of Political Science at the National University of Kiev's Mohila Academy and a non-resident fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. He is the author and editor of 21 books, including Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism and Crime, and most recently, Russia's Nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian War. And we will discuss his article at Geopolitical Monitor, How Western Experts Got the Ukraine War So Wrong. Then finally, we'll investigate why APAC, the Israel lobby, is backing Trumpist candidates who support election deniers and white supremacists at a time when Trump is making anti-Semitic statements and speak with Mitchell Plitnik, the president of Rethinking Foreign Policy and a former vice president at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. A political analyst and frequent writer on the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy, he served as director of the U.S. office of B'Tselem and co-director of the Jewish Voice for Peace. And he is the co-author with Mark Lamont of Except for Palestine, the Limits of Progressive Politics. And he has a recent article at 972 magazine, Apex Insurrectionist for Israel. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. 
And joining us now is Mike German, who's a fellow with the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice, previously served as the Policy Counsel for National Security and Privacy at the American Civil Liberties Union's Washington Legislative Office, and a 16-year veteran of federal law enforcement. He served as a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, where he specialized in domestic terrorism and covert operations. His books include Thinking Like a Terrorist and Disrupt, Discredit, and Divide, How the New FBI Damages Democracy. And he has a report at the Brennan Center for Justice, Hidden in Plain Sight, Racism, White Supremacy, and Far-Right Militancy in Law Enforcement. And he recently submitted written testimony to the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mike German. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Mike. And there's been some reporting on a memo to a top FBI official warning of sympathy within the Bureau for the insurrection, uh, stating that, quote, a sizable percentage of the employee population felt sympathetic to the group that stormed the Capitol. Now, this memo came out two or three days after January the 6th, but the question that's looming now was brought up by Adam Schiff in the recent and possibly the last hearing of the January 6th committee that both its Secret Service and the FBI had lots of intelligence that there was going to be an insurrection on January the 6th, or at least there's going to be a lot of trouble, and they didn't act on it. So is the fact that you your study that you did suggesting that there is sort of racism, white supremacy, and far-right military and law enforcement a part of an explanation for why this intelligence was not acted on prior to January the 6th? Uh, I think it is part of the problem, um, and particularly because it infects all levels of these agencies. So, for example, in October of 2020, uh, Representative Raskin held a hearing on white supremacy in law enforcement, and he asked the FBI to update their 2006 report on the issue uh, and appear at the hearing to testify. But behind closed doors, FBI leaders met with his staff and disavowed their own intelligence. In other words, disavowed the intelligence that FBI agents and analysts were reporting up from their investigations and and said that the FBI did not see uh, white supremacy in law enforcement as a significant concern and refused to testify. Of course, once January 6th happened, it was pretty clear that there was police involvement in the assault on the Capitol, including criminal involvement that has since been uh, prosecuted. Uh, And shortly after that, in February of 2021, uh, a report uh, internal to the FBI was leaked that that was basically the updated version that Raskin has asked for six months prior. So the problem isn't just that that this activity is happening and the FBI is ignoring it, but that agents and analysts on the ground are doing their job and reporting it to FBI management, but FBI management is making the decision not to prioritize this because they would prefer to prioritize other, uh, other issues. And, you know, one of the things that I find fascinating about this, uh, this new email that, that came out shows that FBI leadership was aware of the problem of, of the internal bias toward these rioters as early as a week after the, the assault on the Capitol. And yet we haven't seen any, the FBI engage in any public discussion about the problem or do anything to address it. So, Mike, is that to say then that Christopher Ray, the director of the FBI, is the problem? <laughs> 
Uh, he, he, he's the director of the FBI, so he certainly has a lot of responsibility. And I would argue that the, the fact that he hasn't been out in front talking about the assault on the Capitol, talking about how the FBI intelligence was, was ignored uh, and, and what he's doing to improve the situation, I think, is, is a, an alarm bell. Uh, this is something that requires leadership to address, and and he's just been absent without leave uh, in in trying to address it. And you know, I would argue that that it's broader than just the director. Um, you know, one of the fascinating things this email indicates that the problem was raised to the deputy director very quickly after January sixth, but months after January sixth, Director Ray and counterterrorism head Jill Sanborn both testified before Congress and tried to twist uh, their own authorities to argue that the problem was they didn't have the proper authority to have looked at the multitude of warnings that came forth prior to January 6th, which, of course, is not true. I mean, number one, after 9-11, the FBI's authorities were expanded significantly, so they certainly have the authority to address it. But number two, Groups like the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys had been violent long before January 6th, so there was no shortage of opportunity to open criminal investigations against those groups and, and the members that were engaging in illegal activity, and yet the FBI doesn't seem to have, have even been paying attention to them. Well, we know that some of the information that the Secret Service had was so explosive and quite specific, including a tip saying... They're talking about the insurgents, their plan is to literally kill people. Please, please take this tip seriously and investigate further. What do we know about in-house intel that the FBI had? Uh, we have similar warnings that were expressed internally by analysts who were reading that kind of information on, on the various uh, public forums that uh, uh, social media platforms provide. And we also have direct warnings that they received from from the platforms themselves, from Parler and and uh, from others, uh, as well as you know, uh, just a couple of days before the the attack, uh, Senator Mark Warner, who was head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, made a point of reaching out to the then deputy director of the FBI to to ask him what he's doing about it because. All of these warnings were in public, right? You didn't need a secret intelligence service to tell you that there was a likelihood of, of an assault on the Capitol. They called the rally, stop the steal. And, uh, and, and you know, the Washington Post on the front page of the paper on January 5th uh, was expressing concern about what might happen at the Capitol. So uh, the Hotel Harrington shut down for <laughs> for a couple of days. How is it that the Hotel Harrington had better intelligence about what was going to happen than the FBI and the Capitol Police and the Secret Service? So what would be Christopher Ray's motive in downplaying the threat? Is there any explanation for that? Uh, I, I think uh, what we saw in public happening at the Department of Homeland Security where uh, 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 Trump appointed leaders of that agency were giving express direction to their intelligence heads not to report on white supremacist violence or far right militant violence and to instead 
report on on you know, the so-called threat from Antifa, anti-fascism. Uh, so I imagine that same kind of political pressure was being uh, brought to to the FBI as well, um, in addition to internal biases that make them believe people who who have a viewpoint that they disagree with. Uh, as as more dangerous than people who are actually committing violence in in furtherance of an ideology that they might support. So, the email that was sent to what was it, FBI Deputy Director Paul Abadi, uh, exactly. that, that was revealed by NBC News. In the email, it noted that several agents insisted the violence at the Capitol was little different from. Black Lives Matter protests uh, and the Capitol rioters were being singled out because of political correctness. How much have they done an after-action report, the FBI? on? Have they investigated the ranks? Do they have an idea of how many people are like this in the FBI? No, and they had, again, indications before January 6th and in October of... uh, 2020, uh, Mike Giglio of The Atlantic wrote an article about uh, membership applications to the Oath Keepers, highlighting the many people in law enforcement and the military who were among the applicants. And in that uh, report, there was an indication that people who who described their employment with the FBI and uh, Secret Service and DHS were among the applicants. So you know, a critical question would be, what did the FBI do and these other agencies do when that report came out, much less what did they do once January 6th happened? And, and uh, from what we know, nothing. I mean, we know the military actually had a stand down Department of Defense because they recognized this was a problem with the uh, relatively high number of people uh, it current and former, formerly in the military that participated in, in the assault. But you had the Secretary of Department of Homeland Security order up a report, a study and a report on it. Unfortunately, that report basically punted on the issue by saying, well, we don't really have a good definition of, of domestic violent extremism, so we can't determine who, who in the agency might be influenced by it, even though, of course, they conduct a lot of uh, investigative activity and, and intelligence gathering based on those same definitions. So it's hard to understand how they would be so crippled. Uh, but the FBI has made no public comment about this and has not addressed the issue at all. And I think that highlights, the, you know, that this email highlights that, that leadership was on notice very early after January 6th. And the question for Congress is, is what did they do about it? And, and if the answer is nothing, uh, that, that's a problem. Well, the writer of the email, apparently he said literally he ha- had to explain to a fellow agent the difference between the opportunistic burning and looting during the Black Lives Matter protest that stemmed from a legitimate grievance of police brutality and an insurgent mob whose purpose was to stop the execution of democratic process at the behest of a sitting president. One protest had a smattering of criminals. The other was an organized group of domestic terrorists. And by the way, it certainly doesn't help that Senators Chuck Grassley and Senator Ron Johnson last month hailed an FBI patriot, as they called him, who refused to work on the January 6 cases, uh, who was also suspended from his job because of that. Right. And I think that's a growing indicator that this 
problem is is severe. And keep in mind that the the email came out a week after the attack. This was when even you know ardent Trump supporters like Kevin McCarthy and Lindsey Graham and others were were criticizing the president. So you know that that agents would be supportive of of these rioters at a time when even many in the rank and file of, of the Republican Party were reviled by it, I think shows how, how deep this is a problem, particularly because if the FBI did nothing to address it, then you know, the, 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 the party has come around to where there's almost universal support for these false ideas about the stolen election and whatnot. So just in the last minute then, Mike German, is there likely to be a full hearing or are we going to learn about the kind of intelligence that the FBI had and why they didn't act on it? I mean, we have a real problem with the Secret Service because Tony Anato is now back at the Secret Service and he was Deputy Chief of Staff in the White House and clearly was, I think, I mean, it's pretty obvious that he was involved in all of the memos disappearing along with probably encouraging the insurrection on that day, or at least doing nothing about stopping it? Um, I, I, I don't know. Uh, you know I, I would hope that this information would result in referrals to the Inspector General. Hopefully the, the House and Senate Judiciary Committees will, will grow interested in this problem. It's something that, that deeply infects law enforcement and for the American public to have confidence in these agencies, they have to believe that that what they're doing is is based on objective evidence rather than bias. So, uh, I think it's critically necessary that that type of deep investigation is conducted and in a transparent way, so the public can understand uh, what's being done to protect them. Mark German, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Sure, of course. Good luck. And again, I've been speaking with Mike German, who's a fellow with the Liberty and National Security Program at the Brennan Center for Justice, previously served as a policy counsel for national security and privacy for the American Civil Liberties Union in Washington Legislative Office and a 16-year veteran of federal law enforcement. He served as a special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, where he specialized in domestic terrorism and covert operations. And his books include Thinking Like a Terrorist and Disrupt, Discredit and Divide, How the New FBI Damages Democracy. And he has a report at the Brennan Center for Justice, Hidden in Plain Sight, Racism, White Supremacy and Far-Right Militancy in Law Enforcement, and recently submitted written testimony to the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th. We're going to take a brief station break and we're back looking at how American and Western experts on Russia got the Ukraine war so wrong. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now is Taras Kuzia, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science at the National University of Kiev's Mohila Academy and a non-resident fellow in the Foreign Policy Institute at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. He's the author and editor of 21 books, including Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism and Crime, and most recently, Russian Nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian War. And he has an article at Geopolitical Monitor, How Western Experts Got the Ukraine War So Wrong. Welcome to Background Briefing, Taras Kuzio. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. And clearly, Putin has changed his strategy and is now trying to destroy the infrastructure of Ukraine. I believe at this point, in one week, he's destroyed one-third of the electrical generating capacity in the grids, etc. Meanwhile, of course, on the battlefield, Russia continues to suffer reverses. So it's obviously going to be a pretty cold winter in Ukraine, right? Um, it is, unless um, this can be changed, unless they can be repaired, unless... Um, um, I mean, I don't think it's as bad as sometimes it's been reported. Maybe the Ukrainians are maybe exaggerating. I mean, I am reading as well that something like 70-plus um, percent of the um, missiles and Iranian drone drones coming in, these kamik- so-called kamikaze drones are being knocked out of the sky by existing uh, air defense systems, which are a mixture of Ukrainian and some donated Western ones. I mean, where the where there could be criticism is that the Ukrainians have been asking Western governments for air defense systems for a long time, since the beginning of the invasion, and only now are they beginning to send them. I think at least four countries, Germany, France, um, Britain, United States, have talked about dispatching those air defenses. So, um, Russia, I mean, Russia, as you say, Russia's been, isn't having any success on the battlefield. Russian soldiers don't particularly want to go on a one-to-one fight with Ukrainians because they usually get hammered. Um, and hence, um, the only thing left for Putin is the typical Soviet and Russian tactic of terrorizing civilian population. This doesn't work. It didn't work with the Nazis when they bombed London in 1940, and it won't work in Ukraine. But I guess it gives, you know, it gives uh, Putin uh, joyful glee to do that. But I don't think it's going to change much on the battlefield, these terror attacks. And and sooner or later, as soon as those air defenses from the West arrive, um, it's not going to have any effect. So let's talk about your article at the uh, geopolitical monitor, Taras Kuzio, how Western experts got the Ukraine war so wrong. And you mentioned that in February of 2015, there was a survey by Foreign Affairs which asked the question, should the United States arm Ukraine? And 18 experts disagreed and only nine agreed with sending arms to Ukraine. And amongst those who disagreed are people that I've actually, a lot of whom I've interviewed here, Angela Stent, Anatole Levin, Robert Legvold, Ian Bremmer, Robert Jervis, Jack Snyder, William Walford, Mary Sorot, Keith Darden, Valerie Bunce, then Charles Cupshin, Stephen Walt, and then you've got people like Rajan, Rajan Menon, Eugene Rumer, John Mearsheimer, and Samuel Jarrop, who I've also interviewed as well. So how could, I mean, this is like the neocons got everything so wrong. Why do you think uh, they got it so wrong? 
Well, there's there's, there's many factors involved. Um, I mean, um, the the latter group of names that you mentioned, like Charab, Rajon, Rumor, and Mearsheim, and then they are hardcore realists, and they they've got everything wrong on this war. I mean, they not only oppose the sending of arms, they believe that even if arms were sent, that Ukraine would be defeated. So they exaggerated the power of the Russian military from day one. Um, and, 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 and they always have, I mean, these kind of realists always have this great power mentality of thinking that small countries like Ukraine don't have any agency, don't have any importance. And so it should be just the big, the big boys should sit at a table and sort these difficult problems out, which is exactly what Putin wants. Putin wants a second kind of Yalta agreement, the first one being 1945. He would love a second Yalta agreement where the West basically said, uh, yeah, all of these neighbors around Russia, which we used to be part of the Soviet Union, they're all now part of your influence. We won't have any dealings with them. That's what Putin and the Kremlin want. And these realists are happy to go down that direction, but they've always missed misunderstood the local dynamics. I mean, you know, okay, so even if the Americans and Russians sit at a table and and decide this is how it's going to be, uh, did they take into account maybe the Ukrainians disagree? <laughs> you know, um, in 1945, the Poles, the Czechs and others, the Lithuanians didn't have a chance to disagree. They weren't able to because their countries are occupied by the Soviet army. But today, Ukraine uh, would disagree with this. So. That's one aspect. I don't think these realists really, um, they're out completely out of touch with contemporary reality. On the other, on the other side, I think you've got, you've got a number of problems. Firstly, you've got all of the people you mentioned, like the Angela Stance and the others, Kupchan, um, Keith Darden, they're all experts on Russia. Um, and, and yet they think that they are still experts on the entire former Soviet Union. I mean, this is the only part of the world um, where experts from one country think they're experts on, on the entire region. I mean, if you're an expert on Japan, you're not, you don't declare yourself to be an expert on Asia. If you're an expert on Brazil, you're not an expert on Latin America. But if you're an expert on Russia, that's it. You're an expert on, the, on all of the countries that made up the Soviet Union, 15 republics. And that's obviously ludicrous. Um, I saw this myself in 2014, where, and during that crisis, where the number of people who suddenly became Ukraine experts grew overnight like raindrops you know, in a thunderstorm. Um, none of these people read Ukrainian sources. None of them had traveled to Ukraine. And they all looked at Ukraine through Moscow's eyes. Um, and, and so you have this kind of Orientalism, as it were, looking down at Ukraine as not really a, a real country or just a kind of an appendage of Russia. But I think that's one aspect. And, and if you look at every Every think tank in Washington, New York, uh, or even probably Brussels, and, and also if you look at academic uh, centers which are devoted to uh, Russia, Eurasian, post-communist studies, they're always usually led by these Russianists, people who, who, who are primarily experts on Russia. They dominate those, uh, those centers, and therefore they dominate the kind of output that, and the influence. There's a, I think, a, 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 a more. Um, there's two other factors. Um, one of them is also that they completely um, exaggerated the strength of the Russian military. Um, they um, they either believed the hype, 
that Russian military was going through fundamental reforms and coming out of this a far more leaner and better and more professional military machine. Or you could be more cynical and say they actually exaggerated it for a purpose because they're all beltway bandits, um, like the Rand Corporation and elsewhere or in London, RUSI, Royal United Services Institute, they get money from the Department of Defense or the Ministry of Defense in London, and it's in their interest to exaggerate the strength of the Russian military because that's why they get the money. If they told the Department of Defense in Washington, the Pentagon, that, oh, the Russian military is hopeless, forget it. I mean, they're corrupt, they're pretty incompetent, This they wouldn't be getting any more grants. Um, so I think there's, there's partly that, that you could be cynical. I mean, they're either exaggerating it for financial gain or they're just bad analysts. I mean, it's, it's one of the two. Um, and they certainly got the whole question of corruption wrong. I mean, how can you ignore the fact that since 2010, Russia has been described as a mafia state? This is not just corruption. We have corruption in, in every country in the world. Um, this is far, far more deeper, fundamental. This is a, a natural system of corruption where elites are allowed to be corrupt in return for political favors. Um, it's called um, sort of a blackmail state. And to not believe that that massive level of corruption also affected the, the Russian military and Russian intelligence services shows complete ignorance of Russian society or a deliberate um, sort of not wanting to bring that question up. I mean, one of, one of the major reasons the Ukrainians are doing so well on the battlefield um, besides having Western training compared to Soviet training for the Russian military, is that the Russian military is completely dominated by corruption. I mean, it, it, it's, you know, I could spend hours talking about the degree to which logistical supplies are so poor that Russian soldiers go hungry, they have to go loot for food, that tanks arrive with their inside stripped bare because they've been all the, all the good things have been stolen from them. Um, that weapons don't work, that um, their medical kits are Soviet medical kits from 1978, which means they're useless. Out-of-date food rations are delivered. When the food finally gets to them, the good, bar, good bits like the meat and, and, and other things like that have been stolen and they have to rebuy it back from those who have stolen it. I mean, you can go on and on and on. All of this contributes to low morale very poor officers, very poor quality officers, poorly trained, just don't give a damn about their, their soldiers. Um, and, and it completely contradicts this impression that you got from these Western experts that the Russian military is so powerful that within two or three days, Ukraine's finished. I mean, one of the ironies um, of this article I wrote was that Western experts have the same view as the Kremlin that Ukraine has two or three days, that's it. Um, right. and, that, and that key is going to be captured. And then we should, and, and, but this has concrete implications for Ukraine because it influenced um, the fact that Ukraine should not be sent military support prior to the invasion because Ukraine is going to be so quickly defeated that we should focus only, only on partisan warfare, on guerrilla warfare. Um, 
because the Ukraine army is just going to disintegrate like it disintegrated in Afghanistan. I think that had an impact on thinking as well. Right. Um, so they, they exaggerated the power and strength of the Russian army and completely downplayed and underplayed uh, the strength of Ukrainian society, civil society, and the Ukrainian military. And on both counts, they got it completely wrong. But in terms of Russian experts, you would have thought that they would have understood the history, for example, the Potemkin village, right. which is a huge part of Russian history, but it also continues to be the modus operandi and also uh, the concept of Maskarova, window dressing. Yes, yes, That's yes, yes. innate in the Soviet system. It was all about window yes. dressing. And now you've got this mafia state that, for the life of me. And I've asked these same experts over the years that we listed in the beginning. Over the years, I've, I've asked them, I said, why do we treat Putin like a statesman instead of a criminal? Because he is. He's running a mafia state. I mean, it, it's yeah. so much worse than even today. I don't think the American people have a concept of how deeply ingrained this mafia system is, and how Putin is the godfather yeah. of the godfathers, and he regulates the oligarchs. And basically, you know, if he doesn't like them or they irritate him in any way, he suddenly tells them, you know, I own fifty percent of your business, and the whole system in Russia is operates on the on the notion of uh, Krisha, meaning the roof, uh, which is protection money. So yeah, well, this is this, this, is that... this, um, this blackmail, blackmail, um, blackmail state where you are allowed to be corrupt. You're even encouraged to be corrupt if you're a member of the elites. And that includes elites in the military and the intelligence services. You're encouraged to be corrupt. Then files are collected about your corruption. And that is then used to blackmail you to remain uh, politically loyal. And if you begin to deviate from that loyalty, you you have a habit of falling out of windows. A lot of people seem to fall out of windows in Russia. Um, right. And uh, and so it, it's, it, it's part of the system. It's an ingrained, deep part of the system. And, and linked to that as well is that, um, and people like Mark Gagliotti have written about this, is that, the, the, the Putin regime has weaponized organized crime. So Russian organized crime has to is allowed to do to continue what it's doing, but it also has to work for the Russian state. So in terms of cyber attacks, hacking, in terms of money laundering, um, there you know there have been cases in in Spain where Spanish judiciary has come out and said you know this. Russian organized crime in Spain is is part of the Russian state. You can't divorce the two. When you call a country a mafia state, what that means is that there's no longer a difference between organized crime and the state. The two have, have blended into each other, um, and um, and and that's what. And, and the first time this was this was called Russia was called that was by a Spanish judge in 2010. Your listeners can find that in an actual U.S. diplomatic uh, cable, uh, which was leaked by WikiLeaks. It's there. Just do a search for it. Um, so, yes, um, I, I agree with you that why did they Western experts ignore this? Now, there's only two, as I've said, there's only really two reasons, either because they wanted to deliberately exaggerate the power of the Russian military in order to continue to obtain uh, financial grants from like from the Department of Defense, I mean, RAND Corporation, 
where Samuel Charat works, is very reliant on grants from the Department of Defense. Why would they tell the Department of Defense the Russian military is, is terrible? It's not really very good. It's, it's not really a worthy opponent. They want to tell them the opposite so that they can keep getting the money. Or the other kind of way to deal with this is saying that, well, they're just bad analysts. They simply don't understand Russia. I mean, it's only one of the two, or maybe it's a combination of the two. Um, there can't be any other way to um, explain this. Sure. Um, but just in closing, uh, that Taras, we've run out of time. I mean, the corruption, which is so in ingrained, is one of the reasons, we, as we know, why the military is so underperforming. A lot of it's to do with the Putin system, where he regulates the oligarchs and he steals, basically forces them to, you know, give me 50% of your company. And then mm -hmm. he then redistributes that money to his cronies, uh, who yeah. cut outs to hide his money, one of whom is Prigozhin, his former chef or cook, who does the procurement for the military. And one example was that Prigozhin supplied the Russian military with cheap Chinese tires, and he pocketed yeah, the, yeah. the difference. And they that's one of the reasons why they couldn't get to Kiev. They kept breaking down on the roads. But it's also affected the FSB, the yeah. intelligence service, corruption, they don't even pick up their government checks because they're all shaking down one company or another. So they all yeah, yeah. lied to Putin because they made more money out of lying than telling the truth. Yeah, and also in that in the system which is a dictatorship, and Russia's a dictatorship since constitutional changes in 2020, nobody's going to tell the dictator he's wrong um, because they're not, they'd be on the first train to Siberia. So so um, so you have you know the system's inbuilt to malfunction as it were it's and and those just as you said just like in the soviet system um people lied at the bottom and they were corrupt at the bottom as well but and they lied and they exaggerated for example military successes on the field as this went up the chain those exaggerations got bigger and bigger by the time they reached putin it's like you know you, russia's about to win the war um, and so, um, and you you combine that with with uh, Russian simple, Russian nationalists simply not understanding how Ukraine works or what the ro the ro robustness of Ukrainian civil society, volunteer movement, and Ukrainian identity, and you have uh, you you have the situation you have today, where where the Russian military is simply not not functioning well, um, and. Um, the, the whole entire um, officer corps would need to be replaced in the Russian military for any changes to 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 have effect. And so anything that they do now temporarily, like with this mobilization, will not change anything on the ground. If you can't supply, if you can't supply logistics to 175,000 troops who invaded, how are you going to supply logistics to 300,000? Right. And there's a war within the military itself now where Prigozhin and the Chechen warlord uh, Hadirov, they're basically, through the right-wing nationalists who dominate Russian television, they're now arguing that Prigozhin and, and Hadirov should take over the war and, right. and that the Russian military is failing. They're, they're scapegoating the Russian military and saying, you know, that we, this criminal organization of mercenaries who emptied the gulags in order to fill the ranks, 
they they should take over the war. Good luck with that. I'm afraid we've run out of time, but I thank you, uh, Taris. Any... It's a fascinating subject. I'm sure we'll come back to it. Um, it's not going to go away. I mean, I mean, you, I mean, the second biggest, most powerful army in the world has had to rely on criminals in prison and Iranian drones to to, to fight its war. There you are. And again, I've been speaking with Taras Kusia, who's a professor in the Department of Political Science at, at the National University of Kiev, Mohila Academy. He's also a non-resident fellow in the Foreign Policy Institute at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University, and the author and editor of 21 books, including Putin's War Against Ukraine, Revolution, Nationalism and Crime, and most recently, Russian Nationalism and the Russian-Ukrainian War. And he has an article at Geopolitical Monitor, How Western Experts Got the Ukraine War So Wrong. We're going to take a brief station break and back investigating why APAC, the Israel lobby, is backing Trump as candidates who support election deniers and white supremacists at a time when Trump is making anti-Semitic statements. I have breathed all the sea. You're our fan. Our destiny we will not hide when the sun comes up, it will be on your side. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mitchell Plitnik, who's a president of Rethinking Foreign Policy and a former vice president at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, a political analyst and frequent writer on the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy. He served as director of the U.S. Office of B'Tselem and as a co-director of Jewish Voice for Peace. And he's the co-author with Mark Lamont Hill of Accept for Palestine, The Limits of Progressive Politics. And he has a recent article at 972 magazine, Apex Insurrectionists for Israel. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mitchell Plitnik. Thanks, glad to be here again. Well, thanks for joining us, Mitchell. And APAC is supporting a, n- a number of Trumpster candidates shamelessly at a time when uh, Trump himself is making anti-Semitic uh, statements along with, of course, his, his pal Kanye West. I mean, some of them have ties to white supremacists. Uh, others are, of course, you know, run-of-the-mill homophobes, election deniers, and basically racists. So what's happening here? What's the justification for APAC in choosing to support these Trumpster right-wing Republicans? Well, I think I think APAC's been pretty clear. Uh, their, their guiding principle is what they call strengthening the U.S.-Israel relationship uh, in fact, it's actually support for the most hawkish policies uh, on Israel-Palestine, and whoever supports those most hawkish policies, they will support, regardless of their stances on any other issue. Um, they, they've been explicit about that. They, we're just not look. They basically said outright, we're just not looking at who these people are in any way other than uh, their stance on Israel-Palestine. But APEC, of course, has already had a tremendous effect in basically purging a lot of progressive Democrats in primaries. You could probably point to them as being the main reason why the Democratic Party has become less progressive. 
I think that's somewhat true. I think it's also true that the Democratic rank and file has become more progressive, and some of the uh, members of Congress have been able to withstand uh, uh, APAC's attacks. I mean, you can look at Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, Jamal Bowman, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the, you know, all of the, the, the most sort of top of the line, I guess you might say, progressives, Bernie Sanders in the Senate. Um, you know, APAC hasn't been able to get at them. And APAC has always been very good at picking their battles and getting involved in, in fights they can win. You know, so, for example, uh, they targeted possibly most prominently uh, in this round, uh, Andy Levin in Michigan. And, you know, Levin was very vulnerable uh, and he had upset the Democratic establishment uh, because he cho- chose there was redistricting and rather than run in a district where he would have easily won the Democratic primary but might have lost to a Republican, he decided to run in what is a safe Democratic district against uh, another less progressive but not not completely right wing uh, Democrat. And the district itself is not, you know, it, it, it's it's solidly Democratic, but it isn't particularly far left Democratic, if you want to put it that way. Uh, so the Democratic establishment was not happy with that decision. So Levin was already kind of fighting an uphill battle and uh, APAC prominently went after him, even though, you know, this is a man who's uh, a, a, a leading figure in his uh, local Jewish community, uh, is staunchly pro-Israel, identifies as a Zionist, just not enough of a hawkish Zionist uh, to to suit APAC. I think the other the other important thing to to note is that this election cycle is the first time APAC has actually formed political action committees uh, that raise money and and send money. Uh, before now, uh, APAC was always a just a regular nonprofit and they would grade candidates and other organizations would then know based on that where to send their money. Um, now APAC is doing it directly, and that has led to um, their their new tactic, which is these campaign ads that have nothing to do with Israel-Palestine, because, again, their views on Israel-Palestine are not at all popular. Uh, they can't win on them. That's why they don't talk about it. Well, but they've basically, in supporting these insurrectionists and also these election deniers, they're making a stand against democracy itself. And I thought one of the, the sort of selling points of Israel, particularly in the Middle East, which is dominated by dreadful either military murderers or medieval kingdoms like the Saudis, mm-hmm. that Israel was a vibrant democracy. So, I mean, they're undercutting that message, aren't they? They are, but they don't care. Um, uh, first, for there's there's a few things about that. First, um, you know, I, I would argue Israel's uh, vibrant democracy has always been overstated, but in recent years they have shifted much farther uh, rightward uh, in their politics, in their approach to uh, human rights, uh, and and in fact in their pr- approach to democracy. Uh, we we saw just uh, this past year that they declared six Palestinian, uh, seven actually, Palestinian human rights NGOs as terrorist organization based on evidence that even the United States didn't believe. Um, there, it, it was just really just a obviously made up and, and an intentional attack on Palestinian civil society. So Israel as a democracy 
uh, is, you know, again, I would argue it never really was, certainly not since 1967. But to the extent that it was a democracy, it is becoming much less so. And here, uh, these issues are fading into the background. And the tactic that APAC, not only APAC, but also uh, the American Jewish Committee, uh, Democratic Majority for Israel, various other pro-Israel groups are all taking they're not even making the argument anymore. They're just bullying people uh, into into supporting Israel. They're they're frightening them. Uh, they're scaring them with with what they can do in these campaign ads that they're putting out. And this is what they have left because you know at this point people have seen what the occupation looks like. They've seen what it looks like in Gaza. They've seen what it looks like in Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem. Uh, they've seen what it looks like in Masafayata and, and, and other villages in the West Bank, and they know they can't sell this. So they're just trying to to uh, use the considerable political power they've built up over decades. And, you know, for the moment, at least it's working. I don't see that as a viable long term strategy, but at least for the moment it's working. Uh, and they couple it with, you know, spurious accusations of anti-Semitism. So this is the tactics they have left because they're trying to sell a product that really isn't very marketable in the United States anymore. But how can they complain about anti-Semitism when they're supporting Trump's candidates and Trump himself is making anti-Semitic statements lately along with his pal Kanye West? Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. Um, I think uh, we can look at uh, another extremist organization that I just had an exchange with in recent days, uh, the Zionist Organization of America uh, is planning to honor Trump and, and, and present some, I, I'm not sure exactly, a Man of the Year award or something like that uh, to him uh, in the next few weeks and are completely unfazed by his recent anti-Semitic comments. Um, and when I pointed this out on Twitter and you know uh, outright accused them of racism, I received a response from Morton Klein of the Zionist Organization of America. He's their their president. And he said, well, he started uh, listing all the various anti-Semitic crimes of Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian president, many of which were either distorted, well, I would say all of which were either distorted, half-truths, uh, or outright falsehoods. But uh, in any case, he did not respond in any way. He completely dodged the question of why is his organization honoring a man who just made these anti-Semitic, literally just made a few days ago, these anti-Semitic comments uh, that everybody has been denouncing uh, as anti-Semitic, including many very, very conservative Jewish groups. So uh, not the Republican Jewish groups, but groups like, the again, the American Jewish Committee, the Anti-Defamation League have all denounced this. Uh, Trump's comments as anti-Semitic, yet they honor him anyway. Uh, they have no problem with this hypocrisy. And even when called on it, they don't even try to respond to the allegation. Uh, AIPAC, I think, is is doing the same thing. They are simply throwing everything else to the wind and saying, we don't care how anti-Semitic you are as long as you support Israel. But if you support the Palestinian cause and you say anything that we can even twist into anti-Semitism, we'll come after you with that right away. The hypocrisy does not phase them. So I noticed that the Australian government has reversed a decision made by the previous conservative prime minister who was born again, what they call in Australia, God-botherers. He's one of these mm -hmm. evangelicals that, that uh, the spirit moves him, and they call them happy clappers. 
Um, the new uh, Labor government reversed the decision of moving the Australian embassy to R Jerusalem, and apparently that's mm -hmm. outraged the Israelis. Yeah. What kind of left is left in Israel? Uh, I mean, it's it's a powerless left, uh, but it's not a non-existent left. There is there is a left in Israel. There are still groups like Shalom Achshav, uh, Peace Now. There are still you know the human rights organizations like B'Tselem, like Yisha. There are various uh, groups that are that do work to improve the situation in Israel. But the fact of the matter is that the left was dealt pretty much a death blow 20 years ago when uh, the United States and Israel uh, pushed the myth, the false myth, that Israel had offered the Palestinians peace and instead of peace, they launched the Second Intifada. This is not what happened. Uh, in fact, it's too much to go into now, but but this was uh, Bill Clinton and Ehud Barak breaking a promise to Yasser Arafat that they would not accuse the Palestinians of uh, walking away from the table. Uh, it was the only way Arafat would even go to the, the meetings that they had at Camp David. Uh, but since then, uh, as a political force, the left has been gradually and, and, and fairly quickly declining until now there's really very little organization left. There are still leftists in Israel, but um, they're not really they're not really sure how to uh, go about the politics. The leadership in parties like Merits and Labor has just not proven effective. And for the most part, they you know, people may have some beliefs that, you know, what's happening to the Palestinians are is not right, but it's not affecting their day to day lives very much. Um, this is maybe the biggest obstacle. And so people are, are milling, you know, sort of just going about their business and the people who are politically active and certainly a growing majority in Israel are the far right, not not even the, the sort of classic right, but the far right, uh, as represented right now by the, the Jewish power, Otsmat Yehudit party uh, led by uh, Itamar Ben-Gvir, whose popularity is soaring even taking away votes from Netanyahu's Likud party. Uh, that's the right-wing party that more and more people are uh, are supporting. So there are leftists still in Israel, uh, not nearly as many as there used to be. And and those that are there are not well politically organized for the most part. Uh, so their presence in the Knesset uh, and in really in Israeli politics in general is just, it, 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 it's not only diminished because of their numbers, it's also diminished, uh, it diminished even further uh, because of their lack of organization. So even their diminished numbers aren't reflected in the uh, polity of Israel anymore. So if Israel's politically moving further to the right and with a far right group on the rise and the APAC is supporting the far right Republicans running, you know, there's 299 <laughs> Republicans running for office that are election deniers. And so you wonder why the Democrats support APAC at all. What's the logic there? If it's a, um, a right-wing organization supporting yeah, a right-wing government. I think, well, the Democrat, Democrats are more and more uncomfortable with APAC. Um, and, and I think this has been part of it. There have been Democrats uh, even beyond... Uh, the ones that have lost to APAC-backed candidates that have been complaining about what APAC has been doing in the past year. That being said, um, there's a difference between not supporting APAC and being willing to be seen as being supportive of Palestinian rights. That, we're still not there yet, and that's 
the real problem. So you have um, on, on top of APAC, this is one of the reasons APAC kind of spun off the Democratic majority for Israel. That is a right-wing organization that focuses on the Democratic Party alone. So at least their public politics are certainly not as far to the right as APAC, uh, because they couldn't work within the Democratic Party if they were, but they're still pretty far right. And as I say, they focus exclusively on the Democratic Party. Their their mission is to sort of stamp out the uh, progressive wing of the Democratic Party, uh, while also selling the idea that you can be progressive and still support uh, an Israeli government that you know major human rights organizations agree is an apartheid uh, regime, uh, including incidentally B'Tselem, the the leading human rights organization in Israel. So. Um, Democrats have never moved past the the this this sense that they have to be pro and and part of it is part of it is political but part of it is also ideological. Uh, Joe Biden has has publicly made it very clear his passionate attachment to Israel. He calls himself a Zionist. Um, he has been absolutely shameless about supporting Israeli positions. He won't even consider what Australia just did. Uh, and 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 remove the recognition of West Jerusalem as Israel's capital, which uh, you know Donald Trump did, and you know he would have substantial support in doing if he if he tried it. Uh, although it would be certainly be a political battle, but he's shown no interest in doing that or taking back any of the uh, the things that Trump did that really made you know any sort of two state solution, any sort of solution impossible in the foreseeable future. But the tactics that this sort of breakaway super PAC from APAC, the Democratic Majority for Israel, have been using to knock off progressive Democrats in the primaries and put in pro-APAC, more centrist Democrats, that's pretty, how would you describe that? Blackmail? Bullying? Or what is it? It's just politics as usual? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, it really is. So, uh, first of all, Democratic Democratic majority for Israel isn't a super PAC. They're a they're also a a five hundred one c three. They don't do campaign financing. I forget now what uh, APAC APAC created two actual super PACs. Uh, United for Democracy, I think, was one of them. Uh, there was another one, but they don't mention Israel in their names, and they simply act to support uh, whatever candidates they feel will be the most far radically pro-Israel. Um, and what is that? I mean, yeah, it is. It's politics. Um, it is working. I mean, there, there's nothing, nothing really special about this. They are able to. Uh, to mobilize a great deal of money and political influence, and they use that to pursue their agenda. Um, that's American politics. They're just really good at it. Uh, and unfortunately, they have both that skill and the resources that supporters of Palestinian rights cannot match. And when you add that to a sort of ideological dis- uh, predisposition uh, among Democrats, because we must remember, for many decades, uh, the Democrats were the ones who were the staunchest supporters of Israel, not Republicans. Republicans back in the pre-Newt Gingrich days, that was where you had your your quote-unquote realists, uh, many of whom saw Israel as not such a not such a great bet. It was only later when the evangelical wing took more or less took over the party that that shifted. So, um, and and that 
pro-Israel sensibility, that pro but also not just a sensibility, but an ideology, a really uh, locked-in mindset that Israel is right and we must stand with them no matter what they do and no matter what kind of human rights they violate. That's been a part of democratic politics, you know, since Israel, pretty much since Israel has been created. So that part is really not new. And uh, yeah, what APAC, DMFI, and their associated super PACs are doing, this is American, po American politics, especially in the post-Citizens United, you know, free-for-all, money-buys-everything sort of political world that we've created. Right. And they don't mention Israel in the attack ads. That... They never <laughs> mention Israel again, you right. know, because this is not uh, this is not the selling point. Israel's Israel's exposure as an apartheid state is hard, is a tough sell in the United States. So they don't talk about that. They attack the candidates on, a, on other bases. But the reason that they're doing it is still uh, entirely based on their stances on on Israel and Palestine and Iran. Well, Mitchell Plutink, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Uh, it's a pleasure. Happy to be here anytime. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Mitchell Plitnik, who is the president of Rethinking Foreign Policy and a former vice president at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, a political analyst and frequent writer on the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy. He served as director of the U.S. office of B'Tselem and as co-director of the Jewish Voice for Peace. And he's the co-author with Mark Lamont Hill of Except for Palestine, the Limits of Progressive Politics. And he has a recent article at 972 magazine, Apex Insurrectionists for Israel. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org, where you will find our nonprofit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half